You're here with Claudia Hertzenfelder, the International Student Affairs Commission for the SGPS, and we're going to speak to some graduate and professional students here at Queen's University about their research and how it stretches beyond Canadian borders. What are some of the opportunities and challenges this has afforded them? Let's find out. This is Beyond Canada, International Thought and Scholarship. Today we have a really exciting guest with us, a friend of mine, as well as a fellow colleague in the geography department here at Queen's University, Natalia Santos Acasio. She's going to be talking to us about the art of social infrastructure, Santiago's Poblacion. Oh my goodness. Poblaciones. Poblaciones. This happens every single episode, every single, I think it's one of the challenges of doing a, a podcast on international um, scholarship is it mm-hmm. actually goes to show how, uh, you know, Anglophones or myself, let me not actually point a finger at all English speakers, but how terrible I am at pronouncing things. <laughs> um, okay, maybe you should say the title. Why don't you, why don't you say, go for it? Yes, so The Art of Social Infrastructure, Santiago's Poblaciones and the Afterlives of Arpilleras. Okay, <laughs> so there's there's a lot there to uh, unpack and explain, but first let's get to know you. Uh, who is Natalia? So um, I'm a Port- Puerto Rican student. I'm from Puerto Rico in the Caribbean, for those of you that cannot uh, place it in a map. Um, I have been in Canada now for five or close to six years. I always forget. Um, I came here five or six years ago in 2013 to do my master's degree, which I did at the University of Montreal uh, in a department of comparative literature. And now I'm doing my PhD at Queen's University in a geography department. Uh, so I've, I've kind of jump around, but yeah, uh, yeah so now I'm, I'm, I'm here. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so you're from Puerto Rico and you've been studying in Canada for, for a number of years now. Yeah. And was, was doing your PhD in Canada part of the plan? Um, not really. So I left Puerto Rico. I, I graduated my bachelor's degree uh, in Puerto Rico. I did it at the University of Puerto Rico, uh, the Rio Piedras campus, for those of you that are familiar with it. Um, and I got admitted into the law school of uh, the University of Puerto Rico. And I think two weeks before the program began, I dropped out of it. So I never really started. Mm-hmm. And because I, part of it was because I realized that I wanted to continue um, academic work. And I had done my bachelor's in comparative literature as well. So, what drew you to academia as opposed to? I mean, law is quite challenging and invigorating in its own way. So, what drew you back to academia? Yeah, I just realized law, like the professional school of, of law, wasn't necessarily for me. I was interested in doing a little bit more research before. I don't know what I thought at that point. Obviously, you know, being being twenty and not really understanding mm. things. Um, I thought was like more practical, uh, more tied to real life in, in some ways, which is funny because I'll, as I'll explain later, that's why I'm doing my PhD in geography. But um, so, yeah, so I dropped out of the, the, the law program right before beginning. So I never actually began. And uh, I had just visited Montreal the winter before graduation and I had fallen in love with the city. Um, so when I you know, made the decision to not start law, I decided to apply for different to different universities mm. to do my master's degree. And one of the the places I started looking for programs was in Montreal. So that's how I 
that's how I got to Canada initially. But then uh, I finished my master's degree in comparative literature and I took a little um, break after finishing. Mm -hmm. And it is in that break in which I was I was not really fulfilled with what I had done in my master's degree. Uh, and I was really trying to to see what I wanted to do for at least a long period of time afterwards. And I started reading as much as I could. I was craving kind of critical theory. I was craving political work, economic work, etc. I think because of many things that were going on at the, at the time in the world. So I started reading, and this is like 2016, 17. I started reading a lot in that time. I, mm. I asked friends to recommend books to me and so on. And by the time, by the end of that period of time, I realized that a lot of what I have read was written by geographers. Oh, wow. So I thought that uh, maybe that's where I should start looking for, for a program, because at that point I was ready to do a PhD. Or I thought so. <laughs> and now what, what made you decide, so, so for people who don't know, where mm -hmm. is Santiago? Yeah, so Santiago, uh, it's Santiago de Chile. There are other Santiago's, including famous in Cuba as well. Uh, but Santiago de Chile is the capital of uh, Chile. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also the center of population of Santiago, oh, of Chile, sorry. So Chile is a very long, skinny country. It's also one of the biggest, uh, most populous cities, isn't it? Um, it, it it's up there in Latin America. Yeah. I mean, Buenos Aires is in Ciudad de Mexico. And um, yeah, the, the, the different cities in Brazil are way more um, um, densely populated mm -hmm. than Santiago. But yeah, Santiago must have between nine or ten. Uh, and don't quote me on this. I, it, it should be around there. But um, yeah, so it's the capital economic and um, kind of population uh, center of, of Chile. And it's quite um, just south of the desert of Atacama, which is the big desert in the north of, of, of Chile. Okay, so coming back to your research then. So now we know that you're already quite an international person. You're from Puerto Rico. You are doing research in Canada about Chile. So there's a lot of you know international intersections happening here, a lot of international connections. But before we delve into your research and how you're using these um, these connections, can you explain to us some of the words in the title <laughs> of your essay? <laughs> so, so the one that I got uh, caught on at the start of the program was poblacion. Poblaciones. <laughs> one more time. Yeah, poblaciones. Poblaciones. There you go. Okay. Perfect. So, what what is that? Yes. So, poblaciones. If you translated it um, directly, it would be population, but that's not what it refers to uh, in 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 Chile in Santiago. Uh, poblaciones refer to specific kind of marginalized, poor, but also places that have been shifting since uh, the first half and mid uh, to 21st, uh, 20th century, sorry. So are places that got settled in Santiago as the city began to grow in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And many of them came to be because people that would move from other parts of the country um, would not find necessarily the most hospitable place in the city. And, and people that are familiar with process of urbanization would know that to be the case of uh, so, other so, cities. So yeah. it refers to people or to the place? So, so pobladores would be the people mm -hmm. that live in the spaces and poblaciones are the, the if, you, if you wish, the urban settlement. Yeah. So initially is what a lot of people would call slums. That's a problematic word. Mm -hmm. So uh, I prefer to keep the term to keep the term. Mm -hmm. OK. And uh, and I, I, I decided to keep the term uh, because 
I, I, I wanted to avoid using uh, the slums with all of the connotations that that have. Um, so yeah, the poblaciones are exactly that, are, are peripheral places that... All right, sorry folks about that slightly weird disruption there. We were having some technical issues with our headphones, but we're back. And uh, we were speaking now about the spaces. We were speaking about the spaces and one thing that you did while you were talking about them is you, one, you put an in inverted commas slums over your head. So yes. you, you, you weren't just saying slums, you were saying that there are some issues with the word slums. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, when you were speaking about these areas, you also, when you said peripheral, you mm-hmm. put it in inverted commas, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously our, our listeners can't hear. And I thought that that was quite curious. Why, why would you want to, you know, in, invert, like put, you know, draw, draw attention to the fact that these are peripheral? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and, and, and just because this uh, podcast is about international work, I think it's important to make those uh, kind of clarifications because I think the, the idea of the slum, uh, particularly slums in, say, Latin America, but also other places um, uh, around the world, just carry with them an imaginary of, you know, uh, abject poverty that needs intervention. And a lot of very problematic projects uh, have emerged out of that. So my, and precisely my work deals with those uh, problematic things. So that's why I use the quotation marks with my fingers whenever I, I have to explain what they are and actually use the word slum just to put people in, in you know, to, to explain what, I'm, what I mean by poblaciones. But then I also did the same with uh, peripheral because part, and this is something I engage with in my, in my research, is that the peripheries are constantly being built upon, uh, elaborated upon, uh, bettered, if you wish, and so what was considered peripheral at a certain point in time mm-hmm. might not be as peripheral now, especially when you have cities like Santiago that have kept growing and sprawling so much. So when you say peripheral, you're meaning in a physical sense. So uh, spaces that exist on the, the outskirts of a central part of a city. Right. So yes. And like I say, so initially people would, uh, the working class and the poorer uh, uh, classes of the population would establish their camps or their, you know, housing um, uh, houses uh, in the, what was the peripheries of the city. But as the city has kept growing, right, the, the peripheries have been encompassed, if you wish, within those limits and the city has kept growing. Clear, you know, in, in the and and this is you know very subjective. I don't want to get into the or not subjective, more complicated than I can I give it justice to right now. But um, still, people now would live more in the peripheries uh, and have less ac- less access to certain services in the city, transportation, hospitals, good education, etc. But I think the key here is more that it's a conceptual way of imagining the city, peripheries as in like the marginalized uh, spaces of the city. Okay. That, yeah, maybe at some point were strictly in the geographical locations of the peripheries of the city, but they might or might not be anymore. All right, I'm with you. And then the, the, the second word. So now we're speaking about peripheral spaces and, and potentially people that have been, have been sidelined either politically, socially or economically. But we're also speaking about Arpieras? Arpieras, yeah. So now what is an arpiera and how does it relate to your research? Right. So I look at the afterlife of arpieras and I, there's a tradition. Is it, Arpieras is a kind of handicraft. Uh, there's a longer tradition of, of arpiera making in, in Chile, but also in the region. 
more broadly. However, during the Chilean dictatorship, which um, happened between 1973 when the coup happened and ended officially, the transitional uh, happened in 1990 with the new government uh, that was elected democratically. Uh, so during that time, you know, repression was rampant. Uh, you know, many people know about the human rights violations that took place in that in those years, but at the same time, uh, an economic project was set in motion in, in Chile. And uh, what we call now neoliberalism, we also know neoliberalism looks different depending on where you are researching mm -hmm. it. Uh, however, there was an, an initial economic shock. So many things, um, you know, were defunded, privatized, there were different processes of economic restructuring that took place in... Could, could in you give us an example? So, so right now you're speaking about a lot of really big concepts and mm -hmm. words. You know, you're mm -hmm. saying neoliberalism, you're speaking about economic projects. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for people that don't necessarily have an understanding of Santiago or, or even what some of these concepts mean, could you bring it to the ground first? Try and explain to me how... What, what, what does this mean, an economic project, uh, privatization? What, what is actually right. happening? So uh, Chile has been uh, recognized as an industry of copper, for instance. Mm -hmm. This is not just referring to Santiago, even though that's what I look at, but Chile more broadly, and uh, specifically because the copper mines are in the north of, San of Chile. Sorry. Um, and for instance, a lot of that got uh, privatized. It, it, was, it was nationalized during the previous government that suffered the coup, and it was reprivatized during that era so mm. that specific people could make money out of okay. it uh, and not necessarily put it at the service of the population. Uh, also in Chile, it's very notorious the case of, of higher education, the case of health care, and the case of pensions. And all of this were put within um, frameworks of private um, services. So instead of necessarily the government, it's not to say that it completely got uh, dismantled, because uh, this, these are processes, not mm. just uh, actions that happen overnight, um, that, that you know, caused these services that we understand as social services to be uh, privatized, so for profit um, okay, so, so services instead of just... Uh, Public service. So the, the the city, the country was moving towards privatization, to money ending up in more like capitalist hands, to to an entire political and economic situation mm -hmm. changing. Mm -hmm. So where do Arpieras come into this? Right. Mm -hmm. So I bring the 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 part of the economic aspects of the dictatorship because I think when we think about dictatorships, we think about terror, we think about repression, we think about you know the fact that people cannot organize politically and so on, mm -hmm. but economic was a big thing here and so the already marginalized spaces of the city and people like the pobladores in the poblaciones got hard hit by this process especially okay. so in that context um i mean and i could once again enter open this kind of worms but in this uh con just to, to briefly summarize in this context a lot of families found it very hard to provide for themselves mater materially to to you know feed themselves clothe themselves you know, educate their kids, etc., etc., and so women would come to the Catholic Church, which I would have to make another big parenthesis to explain why the Catholic Catholic Church was involved in helping this woman out. But they would organize uh, with the help of the Catholic Church in different uh, community centers and churches themselves in the poblaciones to create arpilleras, which are pieces of burlap sack that would be embroidered with wool and scraps of fabric. Mm -hmm. And the embroidery would depict 
scenes of life under military rule. So it would depict, it, it would depict the raids that you know, would take place in the poblaciones, for instance. It would depict uh, women looking for the disappeared because there were a lot of people that were disappeared by the regime. Uh, but there were all, also depict scenes of poverty, scenes of soup kitchens where women would solve the, the problems of, of feeding themselves and their families. They would also depict um, cardboard collection, which was another activity in which pobladores engaged during this era to sustain themselves uh, economically. Mm. So, so yeah, the images, the, the, the embroideries, that's what they would depict. They would always, something that I really love mentioning is that they uh, would kind of contextualize the image for you. So mm -hmm. the, the, if you've ever been in Santiago, and I think many other places in South America, you would see the mountains, the mountains of the, of the Andes mm -hmm. everywhere you look. And so you see the, the mountains of, of the Andes uh, kind of framing the picture. So you kind okay. of know where you are. They're contextualizing a little bit. And you will also see the little houses of the poblaciones. So mm -hmm. they were really kind of contextualizing where these scenes of terror, but also economic precarity were taking place. So they were quite literally using material to show their material lives. Exactly. And okay. in an inter interesting way, because Arpillera, like I said, had a, a longer tradition in, 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 in Chile. However, because of their economic precarity, and I think this is something I'm, I'm very interested uh, in in my research, they would use very, you know, humble if you wish materials to to mm. to create or kind of like to contribute to this longer practices um so you can in a way not only experience their economic precarity through what they're depicting but also the materials they chose to depict well wow, there's many levels there and, right and where were, where would these be shown i mean how how were how were How's the dictatorship at the time or, or the, the powers that be at the time responding to these women? Right. So it's it. And that's kind of how I got to this research, uh, because they would be done with the help of the Catholic Church and other. I don't want to be unfair. There were other institutions that would uh, kind of provide the space and, and, and money or materials to create them. But then they would be smuggled abroad of the country in different ways, not just smuggling as in like hiding them to take them out of the country or passing them through, you know, the border with uh, um, Argentina. But uh, they were in different ways taken out of the country to, through contacts in embassies and so on and taken to countries uh, specifically in uh, North America, Mexico, Canada, the U.S. and European countries mm -hmm. uh, as well as even Japan where I saw Arpilleras last, uh, last summer and um, there would be there you know, they would be presented in, in, in events that would try to raise awareness about what was happening in Chile because this is before social media, mm. before the internet boom. So, like, how do you circulate what's happening in your country when you don't have the same kind of te telecommunications and communication um, technologies that we have now? So they would be, you know, brought into these other countries where a lot of the Chilean exiles would be. So many, many people, hundreds of thousands of, Ch of Chileans had to live either forcefully or kind of uh, to avoid being, um, um, you know, being, being detained mm. and, and so on. They had to leave the, leave the country and they, the arpilleras would kind of follow them. So they would kind of like host the arpilleras, try to sell them, 
gather money from their sales, send it back so that women could, you know, feed their families and, and, and move. Use that so there was an entire network happening around exactly. these. Uh, around these. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned now that you went to Japan and you saw mm-hmm. one of them. Is this part of your, uh, you know, is this part of your research? Have you already done field work? Where, where are you in your, your process right now? Right. So in that time that, well, I, yeah, I've seen exhibitions of arpilleras in, in different places. I saw... Uh, that exhibition in, in a tiny museum uh, in a prefecture called Nagano in Japan last summer, but that wasn't actively my research. Uh, I just happened to be there and I and I follow Arpilleras online, so I know where they are. And uh, I've seen them too. That's interesting. You follow them online. So it was a tool. <laughs> it was a tool originally created because there was no online in yeah. effect. <laughs> and now you follow them online. Sorry, yeah. uh, randomly. But no, yeah, their, their circulation, right? It's interesting how it circulated before mm. and how it circulates now, right? And then I also saw an exhibition, uh, a smaller exhibition, part of a broader exhibition in New York City, also in the last spring and so on. But um, what I was going to say about that is that What I was going to say is that, uh, um, <laughs> sorry, I moved her microphone and I completely took her off, uh, <laughs> off track there. You were saying, you were talking about the fact that you're looking at, uh, oh, yeah, in so, different places. Yeah. Right. So, but that hasn't, that wasn't part of my research as it's happening now. I'm going there hopefully in January and their summer. Uh, but in that period that I was explaining a little bit earlier, when I finished my master's degree and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. I was already interested in arpilleras uh, because my master's degree was on, on some Chilean texts and, and outdoors. So l- reading Chilean liter- literature, also listening to music and following artwork, because I kind of really like to plunge into things that I'm researching, um, I discovered the arpilleras, or I hate to use that word, but I, I kind of came across the arpilleras. And um, when I finished my master's degree, I went to Chile and I started kind of doing uh, independent research. Mm-hmm. So I did go to many places where the arpilleras are, or, or are at least are circulated. So I went to a museum in La Legua, which is a municipality just outside of Santiago. I went to an exhibition in Santiago and I also did a little bit of archive work, archival work in um, in the the archives of the church, the Vicaria de la Solidaridad. So where, where are you now in the process? Uh, of my research? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm actually just told you when I came in that I'm, uh, I finished writing my final proposal and I'll, well, when this program comes out, I'll hopefully be a PhD candidate, but uh, <laughs> and right now what I'm doing is uh, preparing for my comprehensive exams, which I'm taking at the beginning of September. Uh, what does that What does that mean? So again, uh-huh. uh, you might have people here that are not necessarily familiar with how mm-hmm. Queen structures things, uh, and I certainly, again, for international students, maybe you're going to have some yeah. students checking in. I had no idea what a comprehensive exam was prior yeah. to coming. Um, you know, it's not how things are structured in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So uh, could you could you lay it down for us? That's a that's an interesting uh, interesting thing about uh, international research too, because or or academic work in general, because in the three countries where I, well. If you call Quebec a different country, I might get in trouble for oh. saying that. But in the three kind of like academic institutions institutions that I have studied, uh, the comprehensive exams are called differently, slightly, but different. Um, and anyway, the process here in the, and I think every department has a little bit of, uh, of a different formula, but um, we have a first meeting 
with your comedy members you kind of show your work your proposal and they give you comments mm -hmm. then they give you time to work on those comments to read <laughs> especially to read uh, on kind of the field that you're expecting to to in a way become an expert if, if that's even appropriate um, and so when you're ready you come back with a final if proposal and then they kind of question you on that proposal but also on those fields of research that you're claiming some kind mm -hmm. of uh, so expertise that, so that's how you go from being in, in effect a, a, a student a PhD student to a PhD candidate because right. they feel that once you've completed that exam you've shown that you have something of a comprehensive hence mm -hmm. the word comprehensive <laughs> understanding of the the field in which you're in and then mm -hmm. you continue so for me, understanding some of these differences was quite a difficult thing as an international student coming over, uh, you know, understanding where I'm from. We have four terms, two semesters. There's always vacation found, uh, you know, on the on the calendar here at uh, Queen's. It's three semesters. Uh, so there are all these small, subtle differences that make sometimes transitioning to a different place complicated. Um, now, one one of the, the challenges that you mentioned to me prior to this interview, which I'd like to talk a bit about now, if we may, was that you find it quite difficult when in, in the way people question you about where you're doing your research. Could you could you explain? Yes, I was telling uh, Claudia that um, something that always kind of raises an eyebrow <laughs> when I share um, my research with people or, or I share what I'm what I'm doing uh, with people is, you know, why if you come from Puerto Rico that, you know, as many of you might have seen in the, in the news in 2017 with the hurricane and now with the massive mobilizations that took place in the summer, why if you come from there so many things to do there you're doing research in um chile mm. uh, that's odd and i think one of the things i was telling claudia was that i feel a little bit i like it because that challenges that challenges me and it makes me kind of like find the the purpose in my own research um but also because i think that that question would not necessarily be posed to a person doing like a Canadian doing research in Canada mm -hmm. or a Canadian doing research in X, Y, and Z. Exactly. Or an uh, international student doing research, say, in Ontario, you know, in our surroundings here. So I think there's an interesting kind of like expectation of what an international student should be doing and kind of the kind of engagements we should have with uh, our countries of origin or mm. the country where we are, you know, in the present. And uh, yeah, to me, that's that's something that deserves a little bit more conversation, I think, inside of academia. So there's potentially some power dynamics at play here, right? Mm -hmm. So you're looking at, um, you know, what's, and I'm going to use inverted commas now, the West, or, or what's potentially seen as Western knowledge production. Mm -hmm. When people from those spaces go out elsewhere to conduct research, no one is really asking questions about why are you not doing research in your own home country? Mm -hmm. Why are you going beyond? But when it comes to those who are, coming from out in and then going out again you there are expectations right and and maybe there is some questioning when let's say a, a canadian uh, student would do research in chile but it's about like i guess the power dynamics because the expectation is that people are poor for instance mm. and that people in canada aren't but then my the questioning to a person like me coming from a country like puerto rico is that um it's different it's like if you already have so much stuff to unpack about your own country, what are your engagements with that, and 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 I think yeah, it's just 
a very different and, and like you say it's a power dynamic and and also a kind of set of expectations and in, in imaginaries about what our countries look like what we should be doing with our research etc mm. etc et this makes me think a bit about the developmentalist thinking so even when i think of research that's happening in south africa versus research that happens in in several european countries you often find and particularly what's interesting now speaking about urban studies is you'll find that when urban studies you you're you're familiar with Jennifer Robinson's work mm-hmm. and she's quite a prolific uh, urban geographer and you'll find that one of her core um you know theses one of the core ideas that she's putting through is that when research is done in cities in the north again another problematic word potentially <laughs> what happens is is there's a focus on modernity how things are becoming new how things are becoming you know um exciting and and at the cutting edge but conversely when things are done in cities of the south uh what happens is there's a focus on development what policies could be created how are things improved and uh that's a really interesting division in terms of what questions are asked about what places yeah yeah and i think that is why i think santiago is such an interesting case to look at because you know there has been what many people call like a relative success of of developmentalism neoliberalism call it what you want it um in in Chile and and you know when you go to touristic spaces when you go to Las Condes which is a, a neighborhood where you know a lot of big institutions banks etc are in you know you can feel you're anywhere you know and it's an OECD country it's uh you know people see but but then when you excavate a little bit underneath that kind of uh landscape and you look at the landscapes of inequality in that city then you realize that the spaces cities in global north south and latin america mm. in north america are way more complicated than just modern cities or developments developmental cities or mm. underdeveloped cities and so on and so forth yeah and i think that what robinson provides is actually a super interesting idea of, of using and looking at cities complementary like what can we learn from cities like santiago about what's happening in cities in the north etc etc and not to create another dichotomy but to see how uh, you know different cities help us to see things in a unique way So now, now you were saying that this expectation you find it to be a challenge mm-hmm. the expectation that you should be doing research in Puerto Rico why why is that a challenge for you Yeah well I think it's because I I don't know if it's like it's like a fair um it's a fair um expectation of what I should be doing with my research I think that as a Puerto Rican with uh, very active engagements with my country and where my family lives but also because I think uh, it's a country that has so much to offer to mm-hmm. the world but at the same time it's going through things that are very unfair to it in terms of uh socioeconomic and political kind of la- um situations uh I don't think that the only way of contributing to my country is through doing research strictly tied to my country. I think Of course. We can open conversations across spaces, which is something that I'm very interested in. Uh we can also bring perspectives from other sites, which is another thing I'm interested in. Well, what's also fascinating about this is I think that if you consider for some academics, the whole world is their oyster. You can look any way you want, and I think you're quite fair in saying that it's an unfair expectation that mm-hmm. um it shouldn't be open to you too, um because somehow you are bearing more responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um uh for for you know for your country of origin which is a really tough thing to navigate as an international student but I'm happy you brought up that you can 
speak about it in different ways because not but it was last month you hosted a, a small a small discussion about Puerto Rico. So you're actually still doing yeah. a whole bunch of things. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So um, yeah, last month I hosted a little informal uh, conversation with whoever wanted to join, including Claudia, uh, to talk about. Uh, a little bit of what was happening in Puerto Rico at the time. It's not that it's over, but it was kind of in, the, in its peak at that time. Um, and yeah, the idea was I was, I was following it. At, the, at that point, I was also writing in collaboration with a professor about the Caribbean. So I was very engaged in that at that point of the summer. Kind of co- coincidentally, it wasn't mm-hmm. really on purpose, kind of fortuitous, but... Um, I don't know how well aware the, the audience might be, but... Um, Puerto Rico was going through massive mobilizations in uh, earlier, <laughs> just a couple of weeks or maybe even a month ago, in which um, we found out about corruption schemes that are now being investigated uh, by the federal government. Puerto Rico is part of the U.S. If you ask me, it's a colony of the U.S. Um, and so the federal government of the U.S. is investigating this uh, corruption schemes in the education department and kind of uh, also the, the managers of the health in, uh, insurance in Puerto Rico. And when that kind of erupted and people were arrested at the same time, uh, private uh, messaging conversation I think is an app that's called Telegraph which I had no idea it existed before then um, of private communications of the governor of Puerto Rico uh, came out in which he would talk with other men of his cabinet but also friends and also you know acquaintances that have power in Puerto Rico and they were revealed to be just saying outrageous things about women, about the LGBTQ community, about uh, people, um, people's body types, about, I think one of the things that really struck a chord was about the, the amount of people that died during the hurricane. They were kind of making fun of that, which hmm. is a traumatizing experience that Puerto Ricans went through, my family included and my friends. So that must, that must be another, something yeah. I've been thinking a bit about, actually. I've got several international student friends here at Queens, of course. Uh, one of them is from India, and India is just gone through extensive flooding his family had to be evacuated um you know i've, I've got another friend who's from hong kong uh, there's massive uh, massive mobilization happening across hong kong now and of course what's happened in puerto rico so i, I wonder if this is not also uh, one of the challenges the hidden challenges of being an international uh, student doing international scholarship uh, how how do you manage those types of tensions when something is going on in your home country uh, but you're busy here doing you know things here uh, what, what are some of the, the the issues and concerns you have yeah I think it's uh, yeah I remember when Hurricane Maria happened and and then when this mass uh, kind of cycle of mobilizations happened this summer the, the first instance I was beginning my program here in Queens and then this summer I was kind of busy uh, doing a lot of academic work too and it just it's 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 kind of it just really makes you feel kind of you realize that you're far away at those instances because mm. there's many moments in which you know because we're so integrated with communication these days I'm a very close to my family I'm very close to my family so I'm c- constantly talking to them so in many instances I kind of forget where I am physically but then these things happen and you kind of feel that distance very like it materializes in yes. front of you and so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this 
little conversation here with people at Queens because I felt like the the Canadian press was not necessarily doing justice to what was happening there there was there were not a lot of information people were asking me very confused about what was happening but also because I kind of didn't you know in other places of the world there are uh, Puerto Rican communities if you go to New York City there's massive uh, Puerto Rican community Florida etc but here in in Kingston and if anybody knows a Puerto Rican please let me know (laughs) because I do not have a community uh, other than my partner who is not from Puerto Rico but he is a a Puerto Rican because of time and, and engagement. Um, and he and and I kind of was looking for that kind of creation of solidarities. And that's lovely that you mentioned, I mean, not lovely that you mentioned that there's, you know, flooding happening in mm. India. But I think the kind of conversations that can emerge from international students kind of sharing a space of thinking and, and promoting solidarities. And something that I wanted to add about that was that... Um, was it 2000? I'm completely... The, one of the things that I felt ever since living in Puerto Rico is that years kind of get modeled in my in, in my head. I mm-hmm. feel like I cannot remember the specific years where thing ha- things have happened. But we have had in the University of Puerto Rico many um, um, strikes and, 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 and mobilizations that had kind of been the his- one of the historical centers of opposition in Puerto Rico, even though now this summer it kind of uh, broadened. And... One of the beautiful things in one of those processes, maybe 2011, was that Chile also was going through La Revolución Pinguina, the the Penguin Revolution, where students were protesting um, hikes in prices and the privatization of higher education. And we had a concert in the University of Puerto Rico with videos of people from other places sending messages of solidarity, some of them from Chile. At the same time, there were mobilizations in, in Montreal happening, the different universities in Montreal striking here in Canada, striking. And I, I, at that point, I wasn't here yet. But, you know, that sense of, of, of this interconnected struggle, say, of students, but also against climate change, but also against, you know, different nodes of, 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 of problems in society, mm. uh, that we could come together to talk about it because they, they touch us all in different ways, but there's also different engagements that can emerge together out of, you know, having students here that are kind of involved in research and, and also in, in political engagements with sites across the world. Yeah, I think that that's potentially one of the opportunities of doing international research is universities are a distinct and unique place in which you've got a variety of people and a variety of ideas coalescing to, to potentially uh, create something. Uh, so when you were speaking earlier, you mentioned that you thought perhaps the Canadian um, media was not you know, being fair in its representation of, of Puerto Rico. And that made me think of one of the challenges that you, challenges slash opportunities that you mm-hmm. said comes with being an international student uh, and an international scholar doing research across boundaries is that of language. Mm-hmm. So how how is language possibly a hindrance? Are you a first, are you a first language English speaker? I think by now the audience <laughs> should know that no, I'm not. Yeah, I can I can fool you for a little bit, but no. I'm my first language in Puerto Rico. Most people, uh, if you're born in the island, overwhelmingly, uh, our first language is Spanish, by far. And uh, so now I'm doing my PhD in English, and then I did my master's in Quebec, and so I did it. Well, not so. There are anglophone universities, but I did it in a francophone university. And and uh, what were some of the what are some of the challenges of not being a first language English speaker in academia? 
That's a, a that's a very good question. I think well, I think from a I guess from if I step back a little bit and not only think about my personal experience, I think more of the kind of like challenges of conversation, just going back to that idea of creating bridges across regions and, and countries and, and, and also issues and, and, and struggles is the fact that I feel that academic production in English is read by everybody, you know, so everybody here is consuming it, but also people in Puerto Rico, people in Chile, people in Mexico and, you know, South Africa, I mean, in South Africa, but you understand what I mean, um, are consuming this um, Canadian, U.S., European uh, literature, especially if it's written in, in English. However, we're not read the same way. So mm. if you write in Spanish, if you write about geography in Spanish, you're not necessarily going to engage in direct conversations. You're going to consume the Anglo uh, production, but you're not going to be read. So that kind of like cuts a little bit or, or hint, uh, yeah. makes it a little bit harder to... Of whose voices have authority, ex- right? So and English voices tend to carry more authority because they're more accessible. And yeah, and, and what kind of discourses are, are prioritized or kind of what kind of... Uh, research is it's it's debated or discussed and and i think that even how ideas are thought right mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. There, there are some anyone who's tried to engage with you know whether it's a german speaker or a japanese speaker or a spanish speaker there, there's a there's a moment at which or an english speaker trying to speak to someone else at which you're trying to articulate what's a very <laughs> understood concept or an idea but that you're never actually asked to explain. Mm-hmm. So, for example, mm-hmm. I know in Japanese there's a word for when light travels through trees. And the like. it's a very specific mm-hmm. word, and mm-hmm. we don't have that in English. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there are quite literally blocks to the yeah. thoughts you can think. Yeah, I actually think it's um, more than actual, like, strictly linguistic. It's also, like, the this cultural mm. kind of things that are attached to language. Because, obviously, when I... I studied in French in in Quebec. It's not tied to necessarily French culture. It's tied to Quebecois culture. And so it's a very different kind of experience. And so because my professors in the University of Puerto Rico that taught me uh, French were not Quebecois. So, you know, at the beginning, it was challenging because it's also all of the encompassing aspects of culture that are imbricated with language. Exactly. And the same thing, in, and I think in Latin America, that's a beautiful thing too, because it is why it's so rich Spanish in that sense, because, you know, we're like 22 or 23 countries in the planet that speak Spanish as their first language or one of the first. And, um, you know, my Spanish is not Chilean Spanish, it's not Mexican Spanish, it's not um, Peruvian Spanish. And I think... You know, the culture that gets, uh, you know, attached to that language and also kind of like the the cultural, the circulation of culture as well. Because I think so a, a small country like Puerto Rico that doesn't necessarily have like a big TV production, big movies, etc. We consume a lot of TV or at mm. least in the 90s when I used to watch TV, we would consume a lot of TV from like, you know, Argentina and Mexico and um Colombia and so we would be very acquainted with some things yeah. of that kind of like regionalisms but it would not necessarily be the other way around so when you come from the smaller countries that do not get you know that you know that uh, other people don't, don't get the same exposition to your culture then it's you know we get lost in translation a lot yeah but it yeah. does pr- potentially provide you as Natalia with some interesting and and uh, you know potential opportunities right the fact that you can engage across these so so in, in some respects, because I can't speak Spanish, um, 
that way of thinking is is blocked me. I mean, unless I then start to sit down, put a peg in the ground and say, okay, I'm going to learn, uh-huh. which will take decades and decades to become acquainted in the way mm-hmm. you're speaking of. So, you know, what, what potential, what opportunities are there in the fact that you can speak two languages, that you are somewhat in tune with these nuances across Spanish, across English? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I I think there's a lot of opportunity, for instance, uh, something that I've always had have had in the back of my head that I would love to it's really identify very I guess important texts in the in the kind of scholarship of geographers in Latin America written in Spanish and then making translations in English Mm -hmm. or French or I mean I'm doing geography in English so I think that's what I know the best but you are fluent in French as well yeah so you got three languages under your belt whoa but um but I yeah there's another thing specialization of languages it's also uh you know if you do geography in English or French you know Mm. you would be more fluent with those concepts in I think I'm more fluent in English than maybe in Spanish and geography just because I've never done you know geographic work if you wish in in, because academic language has its own it's not just a matter of English or Spanish you know the way someone would write it uh, a journal article versus you know a newspaper article versus a tweet like a tweet exactly and um, the theoretical concepts right that get mm. carried you know and translated right and an, an anecdote that I lo- always like to tell people is that I used to do rowing in Montreal with my with the University of Montreal so it was a French team it was a recre- uh, recreational is that the word mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, a leisure team if you wish and uh, I've never done rowing in English or Spanish so I would have no idea what you're telling me in Whoa. in Spanish if you told me like I don't know move the I guess paddle or something you know what I mean like yeah. so you 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 not only learn the language you learn the code so it would be challenging even for me to know what you know what way do like Latin American or like Spanophone this is this is my struggle right now uh, would translate certain urban concepts for instance mm. and so that I can identify them the same way that you know I use them in, in English so in terms of opportunity, I think that that's a, a lovely opportunity in which we can bridge that gap of, you know, Spanophones not necessarily uh, co- uh, being read mm-hmm. here um, the way, the same way that we read Anglo uh, work. Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. Um, and and another opportunity that you you've discussed before is something. So a lot of the work you do is post-colonial. You're you're trying to understand how you know shifting politics has shaped people's lives, people's experiences. And one of the opportunities you said you highlighted for international research uh, was that you think it potentially provides a realm for advocacy. What do you what did you mean by that? Can I ask you a little bit what you uh, a little bit more what you mean by that? Sorry. Well, you 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 said this to <laughs> but, me. But earlier. advocacy, sorry, in because in... you had said that you've met and encountered a whole bunch of people from uh-huh. different um, from different countries. So mm-hmm. South Africa used to be mm-hmm. used to be a colony. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a variety of mm-hmm. most of most of our international friends have actually come from from countries that were colonized at mm-hmm. some point. And in preparation for this podcast today, you had said to me that you think that one of the opportunities that international research and collaboration provides is that there is potentially advocacy right. or sol- solidarity for uh-huh. for for those post-colonial conversations. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm not too sure. I was asking you the question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've actually not... Yeah, I, I, I don't uh, delve as much as I would like in post-colonial work. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, but especially because I come from a country that I consider to be colonized, and, and I know that uh-huh. literature comes from very specific sites like India, for instance, 
person. So I still, you know, it's, it's kind of a different frame that I lo- locate myself. So perhaps in. I use the wrong word there with post-colonialism. I think you know we understand each other, and 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 and, and I think so much productive work is coming from that too. Um, but yeah, I think you know uh, coming together with people that also have their own strengths, and I think this comes back to talking about you know Hong Kong what's happening there and also uh, what's happening in in Puerto Rico right now and also different like uh, demonstrations and and struggles in in Chile I think just you know being here in Canada but also knowing what's happening across the world because what we do is so impacted you know and I think one of the the key components of our you know present and our future it's climate change and how that really shows how connected we are in the world because mm. you know whatever we do in these countries that are influencing carbon release or whatever I don't even know the specific science but that are really kind of prompting uh, um climate change it's it's gonna affect perhaps puerto rico a little bit earlier than it affects necessarily countries that are contributing to to it the most and so you have stronger hurricanes you have uh racing of of the water levels and recently i saw a bunch of but just just to bring it back to the uh the so what we're trying to grapple with here is what 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 are the opportunities so you said like doing international research here provides Mm -hmm. opportunity so let me let me put aside the post-colonial stuff. Forget, forget about my ramblings. No. What opportunities do you think that international research provides with you? So, so having done your research, mm-hmm. what are the the opportunities? Well, I think, and and so I am in still in the process. So I think, like going to Chile now, I I'll be, you know, more aware of the specificities of my research because, mm. like, from afar, even though I've been there and I've engaged in certain teams things before like things are constantly shifting and transforming and I and I feel that you know bringing my work back to Canada but also to Puerto Rico it just opens this kind of like broader conversations in which you know I can I don't yeah not necessarily advocate but also like bring the conversations in which you can sit in the table with people doing research about certain similar topics and, mm. and then we can really think about these issues in a more holistic way if you wish or I really like that you said that because you're, you're not just bringing the research to to Canada mm-hmm. you've got connections that go beyond mm-hmm. just the place where where you're doing it so you could in essence you, you could create more knowledge about about different places in your home country as mm-hmm. well yeah yeah one of the things I'm, I'm excited about and I need to make the mental know I need to send my abstract uh, recent uh, soon is that there is going to be like the first big summit of geography well not summit as in international but like yeah, a, a conference in Puerto Rico for geography and so that's very exciting because when I was there I had the sense that first of all I wasn't doing geography back then I was doing comparative literature and that's what I did my master's on as well Um, so I didn't really have a big sense of who was working there and what they were doing the department was very small I think it even got fusion with the sociology department maybe that was anthropology I don't know that's showing Mm -hmm. the proving the point that I knew very little about it and just to know that you know more kind of work has been done it's very exciting, so I want to go there and I want to present about what I'm doing because I think that would also give me a better sense of, you know, me coming from academia here in Canada, but also doing research in Chile and kind of talking about it in Puerto Rico and learning about what people are doing in Puerto Rico. It just kind of brings it all together and and, and would give you more ideas of what, you know, the potential all of this uh, and the limits as well, but the potential of all of this um, research, you know, can have at the at the end of the day. 
That's a fantastic. I think that's a great spot to to, to leave it right there. But before we say uh, before we say goodbye, I know that you gave me a song that we're mm-hmm. going to play towards the end of this podcast. Uh, and could you just tell me the name of the song, who sings it, and why you chose that song? Yeah. So the song is "Lo único que tengo." And that means the only thing I have. And it refers to the hands, your hands, your working hands is the only thing you have. And it it's sung by uh, Isabel Parra, the daughter of Violeta Parra, if you're familiar with Chilean culture. But it's in an album by Victor Jara, who was uh, tragically killed by the dictatorship early on. And uh, the album is dedicated to the poblaciones, which we began this conversation with. Mm-hmm. So all of the songs in that album, which was, I think it came out in early, before the, the, the coup, but like, 1971 or 72 and um so all of the songs refer to kind of like the struggles and resistance of the spaces and so the song is about you know you don't have anything in the world you don't have money you don't have nothing but you have your hands and so that's the song i chose to share with all of you wonderful why why did you choose that song well i chilean music is one of the things that really uh got me into studying doing research in chile I am very passionate about it, and uh, Victor Jara being one of the, the biggest genius, <laughs> in my opinion. And I think that uh, I love the entire album, but that song is not just like the the you know kind of in a more abstract way, kind of like the way people have fought for for their dignifying housing and for bettering their lives and so on. But also like the melody of it is beautiful. Mm. The music is just very nice. And I thought that uh, it would really capture what I was at least trying to talk about here. No, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the song is beautiful and I hope uh, you out there enjoy it. Thank you for, for joining me today and for having a conversation about so much. <laughs> I think we covered a lot of ground and best of luck with your field work in Chile. Thank you. Me iba a imaginar si yo no tengo un lugar, si yo no tengo lugar, si yo no tengo lugar en la tierra y mis manos son lo único que tengo y mis manos son mi amor y mi sustento y mis manos son lo único que tengo son mi amor y mi sustento no hay donde llegar mi padre mi madre están más lejos de este barrial más lejos de este barrial más lejos de este barrial que una estrella y mis manos son lo único que tengo mis manos son mi amor y mi sustento y mis manos son lo único que tengo son mi amor y mi sustento no 
¿Quién me iba a decir a mí que yo me iba a enamorar cuando no tengo un lugar? Cuando no tengo un lugar, cuando no tengo un lugar en la tierra y mis manos son lo único que tengo. Y mis manos son mi amor y mi sustento, y mis manos son lo único que tengo, son mi amor y mi sustento. A big thank you to today's guest, as well as to all of the staff here at CFRC, with a special thanks to the station manager, Diana Janssen. The bed music for this podcast is Mafiki Zolo featuring Uhuru singing Kona. This has been Beyond Canada, International Thought and Scholarship. <laughs> <laughs>